Welcome to the Tech Map Podcast. My name's Andy Bargery. Today we are talking to Maurice Flynn from a company called Altair, all about the future of marketing and retail e-commerce. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Good morning, Maurice. Welcome to the Tech Map Podcast. How are you today? Morning. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I'm, I'm really well. Maurice, why don't we kick off by you telling us who you are, what you do and what are you famous for? OK, so my name is Maurice Flynn. Uh, I work uh, with a company called Altair. I have been uh, in the marketing space for 25 years, the digital space for 15 and uh, been working around programmatic, depending on how you define that, for anything between three and, and ten years. What am I famous for? I have built up something of a reputation in speaking on these topics and trying to bring them to life in as simple a way as possible, trying to avoid too much jargon so that all types of business professionals can understand how these things work and how we can integrate all of these new opportunities to create a good brand experience for the end consumer. Got you. And it sounds like you're on a bit of a mission here, Maurice. You're on a mission to help marketeers to keep up with the change driven by digital in, in marketing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Been doing that for 15 years now, worked with all sorts of companies, large and small. I think, though, it goes back to my youth in a way because I'm an engineer by training. So my first kind of 10 years in marketing, I was kind of, in some ways, looking around to work out where was all the data to back up all of these decisions. And some of it was there, of course. This was through the 90s. But a lot of the decisions were based on gut feel and, and experience and, and sort of anecdotal case study. Um, so now that we do have more and more data and also we've got the computer power to, to analyze it increasingly in real time, I'm just delighted that that capability is now feeding into the marketing mix. And I just want to make sure that all of the folk that have been struggling to work out how you work out what the right thing to do is are aware of this this new capability, if you like. So it is a bit of a cause. Got you. So, so before we launch off in that direction to find out what the future of marketing is, just yeah. to, something you said there in terms of it used to be based on gut feel and intuition and now, now yeah. decisions are much more data-led. Do you think that there is still a place at the table for those with experience and gut feel, intuition to take marketing decisions? It's a really good question, isn't it? The main problem is that we need culture change. We need companies to stop feeling that gut decision is acceptable for most of the time and start to say, where's the data? Where's my analysis? Where's my control test that proves this this marketing idea or hypothesis so first of all i would say in order to get that message across we've got to be quite strict and we've got to say for a period of time let's let's move away from gut feel and let's try this more data-led approach of course after that 
we also accept that the best data analysis engine known to man is is the brain. And therefore, that's where gut feel decisions are coming from. So ultimately, there is always going to be room for those type of decision-making processes, particularly as maybe a senior level or indeed a, a junior level as you try and just get the work done. But I think there's been it's been a, it's kind of been allowed to to happen for too long. And in order to create culture change, as you know, it's got to start from the top. It's got to be a big drive. We've got to aim for the sky, and then we'll achieve, you know, enough to 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 move the marketing field in this this more data led direction. Does right. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So so there's a place. It's hand in hand. It's data and it's experience and intuition. Yes. But the data drives the thinking and the intuition and the experience drives perhaps the decision making. Perhaps that's the way to look at yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Well yeah. one of the ways we've been positioning it for some of our clients and partners is that we use technology and data to empower creative ideas. There's there's probably nothing better than a good, creative, innovative idea. However, you often need data to justify investment behind the idea, and you often need technology to scale the idea and increase its reach locally, nationally, globally. So we see our technology and our, and our data allowing the creative ideas to reach their full potential, not, not getting in the way. Well, I, th- I think data and, and research has always been the bedrock of good creative, hasn't it? If you look back for, for years, the, the, the advertising community has been using insights and market research studies to fuel their creative thinking around what should that process, what should that creative output look like? So it's nothing new. It's just now we have a ton load more of data to play with, much more data points to use as part of our understanding our audience and using that as a way to fuel that creative thinking. True, but could I just, um, if I may, disagree slightly with one of the things you said there, Andy, just in in the interest of good debate. So in my experience, when I did my 10 years in FMCG land, so supermarket brand land, lots of advertising, big budgets, in that period of time, less than 50% of the time, and I would say maybe 25% of the time, did I see advertising and indeed marketing as a whole, being developed based on data. And, I, I, and, and when I worked with ad agencies, and I started in the ad agency space way back when, data was a very small part and insight was a very small part of the process in the sense of robustly examining all of the insight to choose the best piece of data to build the idea on not just cherry-picking something from a focus group report that's caught the eye of the creative director <laughs> and then drives the output. Do you, do you, I do, do you know what I mean? Entirely, yeah. So re- yeah. in reality, the creative directors of the agencies have typically led that process using either the data or, or a piece of data that, that has resonated with them to create the overall creative strategy. Yeah, exactly. Now, that, to be fair, was ad agencies that I was working with in the 90s in the FMCG space. So there were a certain type of ad agency. I know now we've got a new generation coming through. Um, We work with a very good partner called the CRM agency. Their creative director is very much of the data-led approach. So there's a new generation coming through now that are much more savvy in this space. Got you. 
So alongside data and the explosion of data, there's been an explosion in the number of tools that we have in our digital marketing toolbox, I suppose you might say, from managing and monitoring social media to email marketing to marketing automation, DMPs, programmatic advertising, yada, yada, it goes on and on and on. So as a marketeer, how do you you keep on top of this? How do you understand where to invest your thinking and thought processes to make sure that you are staying up to date with what's current in marketing? Well, the short answer to that is you can use our marketing technology, but I know we don't want a hard sell today. I'm, I'm joking, <laughs> obviously. Um, no, the it's more a good try, answer, though, Morris. I appreciate you, you trying to you've try. You've got to try. Yeah, you've got to yeah, try. Yeah. No, the more intelligent answer is state the obvious first. You've got to be clear on your objectives, and you need to make those objectives quantifiable, and you need to make those objectives uh, relevant at the what we call, you know, the C-suite, the, the board of direct level. That way, you know, you can get buy-in at the top of the company. You can get understanding and awareness because at the top of the company, they know that your project is driving their next bonus, essentially. So that's really important. And then you've got to work that back through a, a, a marketing modeling process so that you can work out, okay, how do I deliver this sales growth? How do I make sure that's profitable for the business? How do I make sure that the return on investment is above the hurdle rate? How do I make sure that the forecast growth in customer lifetime value looks attractive enough versus all the other options for sinking this investment elsewhere? And then you work that back into a marketing model. So then you know, okay, what does that mean in terms of who I need to talk to, how many times, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really clear to build a proper quantified yeah, quantified marketing model. I think we know that, but most people still don't do that. And it's not done as a driver of the project. On a more... Isn't that the same, whatever you're talking about marketing-wise, whether it's just planning your marketing strategy to have the, the quantifiable metrics in there so you know whether it's working, whether you're using tech or not? True. Most marketing and agencies have learned to speak that language now give us our objectives what are the kpis what are the targets the problem is is those objectives are often plucked out of the air whereas the what the robust the robust approach is to go up to the c-suite level look at their top three top five objectives so that you know you're going to be talking at a level where you can win further support and investment and then work those down into the mid-level metrics that are going to drive the campaign so that's the missing piece for many 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 companies still in this space so it's alignment between i guess marketing strategy and marketing execution almost exactly exactly now as you say that bit we kind of all know now but it's still not being done thoroughly through 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 the business top to bottom in terms of then what do you do with that knowledge now that you've got some quantified targets to get it to to aim for and then how do you choose your tools which is obviously the main question i think there what you have to be realistic about is you're going to have some legacy systems that aren't going anywhere you know you might have some kind of database you're going to have some kind of databases of consumer data whether it's stuff you've sold or whether it's you know stuff you've scraped from from website interactions and so on you, you've probably got some social media interactions going on and the data you get from that. And they're all going to be in different systems. Now, 
the big guys, you know, the Adobe's, the Oracle's, the IBM's will, will come in and, you know, we work with those companies. We, we've got total respect for them. And they will say, okay, you know, we'll replace pretty much everything. We'll put in an end-to-end system solution. And when it's ready, it's going to do everything. And that's fantastic. But for some companies, you know, for some companies, the cost is a bit beyond their budgets. For other companies, the time scale and the resources required are, are too great. Well, I think when you're talking about the likes of the Oracles and the Adobe's, you're, you're certainly talking about large enterprise only, aren't you? So for the rest of us that are even medium, uh, small or certainly micro businesses, it's a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? But but yeah absolutely but i think what you're talking about is getting a solution that gives you a single view of your customer across whatever wherever you're interacting with them and that that's the piece of tech the crucial piece of tech that you need here to almost glue all of your activity together well the single customer view is is the big buzzword of the last few years and it's definitely a step in the right direction versus just you know data sets that are not connected to an individual target or profile the problem is of course when you get into the space of you know data privacy and data compliance law and then you need to be very careful how you manage that PII data personal Mm. data versus how you manage data that allows you to target certain segments in a marketing campaign so single customer view is definitely a big step forward versus mixed up data and different databases but it doesn't allow you to action the campaigns through all the multiple marketing channels straight away it's just a step in that journey certainly a a good first step coming down as you say from the enterprise level to what the an sme can do the other problem you've got with the with the tool the choice of tools is that everyone talks about um, and costs in this space based on you know licensing cost and some basic setup cost but they sell the dream. They sell the dream of fully personalized content going out to high converting segments, semi-automated fashion. But the reality to set that up effectively costs a multiple of the quoted cost. So mm. if, a, if a company tells you that's, you know, we will get you on that journey for 50K, the reality is to really do that properly, you're talking about, you know, five times that maybe. I think that's if, a common not complaints or criticism but observation around adopting marketing automation is that just plugging in the tech and putting your data in isn't enough there's an awful lot more that goes into setting up and managing the 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 ongoing use of that automation platform so even with the the smaller solutions if you're quoted 5k for for a, a marketing tool in fact to get it really working again you're often talking about five times that amount and of course it's too easy for companies not to plan that in at the start because they want to buy the tool, get going. And then you end up with this disconnect where senior management think they've bought the tool to get the dream and their middle management and the junior team that are often doing the work are desperately trying to live up to the expectation. What you end up with is sending out the same content, fairly static, not incredibly personalized, that you're doing on the previous cheaper system because you haven't worked out how to do it on the new system and you fall back to the safe default option. <laughs> so w- with that, do you think that the the fault lays with the guys just trying to get the tech in or is it with the salesperson who's not really is chasing the sale rather than advising and consulting on the sale and, and what's required to make it work? I guess everyone shares has to share a bit of the blame, don't they? Because what it means is that nobody has a clear understanding 
of the end-to-end -end process. And so we're, if we're in that situation, we're all a bit culpable. I think the solution, though, is to make sure that there's at least one person that is planning the project from start to finish rather than what often happens even in small companies where it gets split up between different parties. The, the partners are doing some of the work. Internally, we're doing some of the work. And it's very hard to make sure that that solution is then fully thought through. Uh, and that, in my experience, is where, where you end up with a solution that's, that's not whatever and expected. Whereas at least if you've got someone that's got full ownership of, of that decision-making process and also has the experience to know the pros and cons of different ways of doing it, then it's actually quite a straightforward process. Mm. So that the person with the skill has to take that ownership and see the project from start to finish is probably quite a, not necessarily a rare breed these days, but certainly in demand. Yes. And this is a really good point, Andy. I think it's as much about personality and attitude as it is about experience. For this stage, what you need someone with is, I, I feel and I've found is with quite a method, methodical approach goes through it step by step, doesn't get diverted by sales patter, doesn't get confused by information overload, keeps the objectives in mind. Okay, the board have said this project needs to deliver this, these sales growths at this profitability, at this hurdle rate in terms of ROI. We're hoping to achieve this sort of growth, customer lifetime value. Okay, that's what we've got to gun for. Everything else is irrelevant as long as it delivers that. Uh, and so, you, you, you know, quite a, quite a, it doesn't need to be the most experienced person to do that, but they do need to have that methodical approach, keeping the eye on the targets and not getting distracted in the middle of a big RFP process of, of all the noise and, and politics and so on. So we're still really in the, in the land of data here, aren't we? We've talked about using data to create insights to drive creative strategy. We're now talking about managing and maintaining a database so that we can create more effective customer communications so 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 there's a lot of data going on here yeah um, what what are there any sort of algorithms we can use or, or tools and technologies we can use that will help us to really stay on top of that yes the answer is yes the thing about the algorithms is that as you probably are already aware the mathematics behind the algorithms has been around for, for decades. I, myself, when I did my engineering degree, one of my theses used Bayesian probability formulas, which are one of the many algorithms used for some of the, by some of the experts in the machine learning space. So the, the maths has been around for a long time. Um, what's been missing has been the application of that maths into the marketing field, the financial services industry, you know, the trading industry of financial shares and stocks and so on have been doing it for a decade or more now. Right. So the algorithms are there. The computing power is there, now there through, through the cloud-based providers. We can set up uh, an analysis tool using Amazon machine learning provision. We can tap into... IBM Watson through their APIs, you know, the, the Google have open source a lot of their machine learning capability, not, not their best stuff, but enough for most, keep most of us happy for a good while. So we've got the algorithms, we've got the low cost software. So the, the question, the, the missing piece is the expertise to, to fit it together and confidently reassure your managers that it's the right solution and we're not, it's not too complex for, for the company. And secondly, I think what 
works is if you have a, a piece of software or a tool that you can insert into your legacy systems, which are not going away, they're often chosen on you know, one to three year procurement cycles. Most of us only have limited control over that. So what you want is a solution, a piece of software that you can insert into those systems to make them do what you thought you were going to get off the shelf. And that's why I believe there's a new breed of smaller, more agile businesses that have created this marketing technology. Altair is one of them. Obviously, there are others out there as well that allows you to make, put your, your ECRM system, your ad tech, uh, your marketing automation software working in the way you thought it would, which is creating personalized content, personalized messages, and putting those out to your consumers at the appropriate time, i.e. responding in real time. So you're sticking all of my tech together to make it work better. Glue for the tech, exactly. Glue for the tech. Okay, good. All right, so we've now got all the tech working together, and, and, and let's move on and talk a bit about all the different pieces of tech. So how do we make sure, for example, we are using social media uh, to reach our influencers? How do we scale around that? Um, how do we use what's happening with online advertising and video, for example? Is that, are all those spaces still evolving, or are we, to, are we sort of plateaued in terms of the development in those areas? So definitely evolving if anything it's 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 all about exponential growth isn't it computing power moore's law is still continuing by estimates of the experts we've got another 10 years of that maybe so computing power and therefore the capability of these platforms is increasing exponentially so however not all of the industries are taking advantage of that the ad tech industry i would argue definitely is so in the ad industry now, through the programmatic platforms, through the capabilities of joining up some kind of data management platform with some kind of demand side platform, we can now get a, uh, a dynamically created advertising idea out to different people at different times according to where they are and what they're doing. It's, or, a, it's an incredible space, uh, programmatic yeah. right now. It's changing and evolving at rapid pace and growing you know, exponentially right now is just very exciting. But it's not without its challenges. It's not without Absolutely. the issues of ad blocking and ad fraud and, and yeah. those metrics around viewability and things like that that I think are certainly holding that space back from where it might get to. But I'm sure that we'll see the industry overcoming those things in, in the near future. Yeah, I think some of it the industry will overcome in, in in the next few years because it will go where the money is and, and more and more money is going to, more and more marketing money is going to move into programmatic looking for the intelligence and the data and the personalization that offers. Some of it will come through generational change. There's there's an older generation of advertising exec and, and media planner and buyer that don't want to move to the new programmatic model because you know they've done tremendously well with the old model and you know why 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 give up their their slice of the pie but some of those you know will be coming to the end of their careers the new generation will come up to replace that um, so i think it's a, it's a mixture of factors of course the old the old school approach to programmatic advertising has thrown up some of these issues so we've got hidden commissions in between the layers of the different technologies that, that you know, plug into the programmatic 
add opportunities. That's all been surfaced now. And as a result, some of the clients are bringing their programmatic advertising in-house because they just do not trust what they're being told by some of their 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 previous partners on the media buying space. So there's so, a lack of transparency, or at least there has been a lack of transparency in that space. Yes, I mean, lack of transparency, no transparency whatsoever. You, you can talk to providers in this space, um, ad tech providers. I won't mention any names because it wouldn't be fair. I'd get in trouble. <laughs> um, but you can talk to them and they will literally show you where you hide your commission on their platform. Right, so you okay. Can, you can then present the numbers you want to your client. Now, clients are not stupid whatsoever, and so they, they've cottoned on to that. Uh, and obviously, there's a big crossover between the marketing world, the agency world, so that the knowledge quickly seeps across. Mm, absolutely. Uh, so we need to clean up our game in, in the ad tech side, on, on the agency side. Uh, we need to recognize that. It, we, we, we need to charge reasonable commissions for our work. You know, we still need to turn a profit so we can and cover our costs. But we just, need, you know, the, 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 the gold mining days are probably over and we need to get down to more realistic commission levels. Okay, so a change in the way the industry is compensated for the work that they do. I, th- I think the agency sector is certainly being challenged enormously by not just programmatic but other digital technologies. Uh, Absolutely. S- some of the big holding groups, the Omnicoms and WPPs, are taking giant strides to make sure they don't get left behind. But there's an, also an, an army of smaller agencies and consultancies coming up that are very specialist. Um, yes, that, that own that are trying to own this space as well. So it's a very interesting landscape right now, the agency space. Definitely, definitely, and I think most people recognise that it, it's it's got to change, and it's got to change probably quite quite dramatically. But that change will usually come about by the big agency groups buying in the smaller innovators and then absorbing them into into their model and then trying to create that change and that mm. culture change from, from within. Unless, of course, the big brands drive it. Obviously, in the ad tech space, some of them uh, are you know, running trading desks in-house now, in, in which case the, the, the media partners need to, you know, to be nimble to kind of retain their, their ongoing relevance and the profitability of that relevance within that relationship. Okay, so we've talked a bit about programmatic, but what's happening with the video space? What are we seeing in that area that uh, marketeers need to stay on top of? Yeah, I think with video, most of us accept that there probably isn't a much more compelling medium available in the sense it's it's multi-sensory, isn't it, the way it engages your attention. But, of course, it's got to be packaged up so it's appropriate to the channel. So with our busy lives and, and short extension spans, it's all about bite-sized pieces of content that we can enjoy and share on, on the fly as we rush through our busy days. So the traditional long-form video is, as we all know, being kind of chopped down accordingly. And equally, when we do have time to enjoy the full experience, when we're in the evening watching our Netflix we can then enjoy the long-form video and indeed be still influenced by the, the, the mega TV ads. But the big dynamism is in the, the short-form and that ability of short-form video to now penetrate the various platforms, social media obviously being one, and, and also being highly shareable if the content is engaging. 
and create brand impressions or content impressions in, in the viewer's brain in the fraction of the second as they flick down their, their Facebook news feed. Do you, do you think then that video, because obviously video is enormous, and I've noticed, at least in myself, in my use of Facebook, it's typically video content that catches my attention before anything else. So do you think yeah. we're going to see or are we going to continue to see an explosion of, of video of all different levels of quality being pushed out into the Internet? So I think yes. In fact, talking about video of all different levels of quality, obviously we kind of got that at the moment with the, the amateur sort of video that is causing you know lots of engagement. Some of the low quality stuff, the pirated stuff, it's all out there. What we probably haven't got so much of, but we're going to see a lot more of, is the highest quality content being produced in, in video format primarily by the highest quality uh, top-end content producers, whether they're from the ad industry, the TV industry, other creative industries, and, and video being the first and most obvious content format to think about, just as in the past, maybe if you were going to go into the mobile app market, you'd probably start on iOS to, to deliver that to prototype the best experience again that that industry though is is quite traditional um, and needs to work in a more nimble way you know moving towards the shorter formats and how you string shorter formats into a narrative mm. over time is, is something that the social media enthusiasts can probably tell the traditional video industry a lot about maybe the TV industry as well we work with a company called Youngest Media that are doing some really innovative short video formats in that space as well. So I think video is, is, seems to be this general opinion that it's the future in, in many ways of, of content. Now, that doesn't mean just, you know, talking heads, talking people. Uh, you know, that means animation, of course, as well. And animation is often a cheaper way and an easier way for SMEs to create video-type content, isn't it? Because... Mm. Filming people can be quite hard work to make that look right. Creating an animation around a collage of content is, is a lot more comfortable for an SME. Mm, a lot more affordable for that, that exactly. level of the market. I think it's interesting, you know, we've seen waves of content production changing changing industries, really. So when people yeah. started to be able to publish lots of content through blogs, for example, Lots of people suddenly rushed into the market and started writing blogs of very varying degrees of quality. Yeah. And you've seen that refined now down to those that are committed and good writers still get the, the eyeballs and everyone else has dropped off and moved on to Twitter or Instagram or something else. And it's kind of that ev evolution of suddenly it's publicly available to anybody to become a media producer. They try it and then only the best succeed and the quality rises. And maybe that's the same thing we'll be seeing with, with um, video content. I, I think that's that's a factor, but I think equally there's personally, and I may be wrong, I have been many times before, I think there's a bigger factor, which is the long tail of content and content producers who through the internet and so on can get their content out to an audience at low cost and, and through various mechanisms, advertising, for example, make some money off that. I think as a result, there's a just as Amazon invented the long tail of the, the book inventory online, there's now a long tail of content availability so that everybody can find the content created they like. You can see that through the explosion of amateur chefs on YouTube, beauty um, and makeover advisors on, on, on various social media channels. 
And so I can get my cooking tips or my beauty tips if I needed that from the person <laughs> that appeals to me, whether it's an age appeal or a location appeal or just a sense of humor appeal, rather than traditionally it had to come through some arbiters of, of, of quality, mm. which might have been the TV commissioning editors on the TV side, the, the book publishers on the book side, etc. They've been not pushed out of the way. They're, so, they're still very important at the top of the, the you know curation tree. But the rest of the time, we're, we're finding our own content on, on the fly. Uh, when I look at my little boy, two and a half years old, flicking through YouTube and watching homemade videos of people unwrapping Kinder Eggs and playing with the toys, he's found his own content creators. The quality is, is appalling, but he watches those all day long. Um, what that's going to do to him by the time he turns 18, I, you know, I can imagine. <laughs> I, I can relate to that entirely. I have uh, a, a three-year-old and a five-year-old and, and YouTube oh, is something that they, 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 <laughs> they just get it straight away. But you have to yeah. be very careful. Um, there's some very unpleasant content on YouTube, so be careful. Yes. <laughs> you yeah, never I, know I, I listen to the audio in the background. <laughs> I think you have to. <laughs> So, so video is interesting, and I think you know audio is interesting as well. Obviously, we're talking here on a podcast, and I think there's been an explosion yeah. in podcasting in the last couple of years as well. But there's there's lots of other new pieces of tech that I think are going to create opportunities and also challenges and probably strive for marketeers as well. If yeah. we look at things like Internet of Things, virtual yeah. reality, uh, instant messaging is a, I mean, instant messaging is a challenge right now, isn't it? How do you advertise? Or how do you connect with people that are communicating through private instant messages and not using email, for example? I mean, sure. all of these new tech create a whole bunch of headaches for marketeers to think about, to, to contend with. So what do you, what do you think? What, are the, what do you think will be the, the next, over the next two, three, four years, what's going to really disrupt the way we are creating sure. our engagement strategies? So, really good question, obviously. I think of those three you mentioned there, instant messaging is, is obviously of the moment and big. They're challenges, but they're also opportunities, aren't they? Because whereas in the past I had a few TV channels to choose from, some of which took advertising, and therefore I needed some mega resources to get my content, brand content out to an audience – Nowadays, and particularly in the newer channels where sometimes if you're clever, the costs of entry can be lower, I can get that message out to, to, and build an audience over time. So there are challenges, but also opportunities for the more nimble. You hear this term, don't you, growth hackers in the marketing community. Yes. Looking for opportunities, jumping on it, riding it for a few weeks or a few months, and then looking for the next opportunity behind that. So, but instant messaging is now... As always with these new channels like Facebook, classic examples, it moves, it matures, it moves into the mainstream. It becomes increasingly attractive to advertisers because they love the mainstream. But the you know the the innovators move on quite often because not least because grandma keeps you know liking them. So <laughs> in the instant messaging, the the Snapchats and so on are taking up that uh, that demand for new ways of communicating with your, with your friends and, and sharing content and profiling yourself. And, and marketing just need to learn, as we are getting better at, to keep up. You know, in the past, things might change dramatically you know, every few years or so. Now it's every few you know, months or quarters. And, and I think a lot of marketing company, companies, you know, the likes of Coca-Cola, they've reorganized, particularly around social media, to try and, to try and tap into that. 
terms of the other ones you mentioned, virtual reality, I think, and we think at Altair, we've got a virtual reality team. We think this is definitely one of the next big important things. We think that it's, there's, you always with these new techs, you're worried about, is it going to, you know, crash and burn, get over, everyone overexcited, then underdeliver. But with virtual reality, we've had augmented reality, you know, a couple of years back now, which basically got everyone excited and then dropped away. Mm. Virtual reality has kind of come off the back of that in, in general terms, experiential terms. And now we've got the power of the gaming community because often it's programmed on gaming platforms, getting into that space, creating the experiences, which is an incredible community to get behind any relatively new tech. I was talking to a guy, another VR contact the other day, and he said there's no better pitch to a, to a brand meeting than when you put a VR headset on them. And quite often, rather than it being a three-month decision process, you can get a decision on the spot. It doesn't matter if they get ill from the experience, they, they're moved, they can see how immersive it is, and they can just imagine what their brand could do in that space. So, so who's doing this? Because I haven't seen anything in this space that's been particularly exciting but i'm not very close to it so maybe there are some great examples of brands engaging with vr and doing something impressive i mean the 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 best stuff at the moment is not necessarily brand-led as always it's content-led so coming out of the um the big conferences there have been some examples of vr experiences based in space under the water which um all of the reviews have been incredibly um positive but they haven't been brand-led. They come from content producers like all good innovation tends to. In the brand space, obviously McDonald's did, did their promotion a few months back, and that was innovative in terms of you turned the McDonald's packaging, the ready meal packaging, into your cardboard headset and then stuck your phone in and you went into a McDonald's game. Obviously, the experience was pretty basic, traditional. I, I hadn't heard of that campaign. I'm going to have to I'll look that up. I'll send you the link. Yeah, please do. Yeah. So, you know, you might say the immersive experience wasn't that amazing. It was just like a traditional, you know, brand doing a game. But the fact they incorporated it with real world physical object in a relevant way was 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 interesting. But the, the brands are really just experimenting now. Mm. I, you know, they definitely aren't leading the way, but they are getting excited about it. Um, the areas that are probably most advanced would be the areas of learning and development. Okay. So I was talking to uh, another contact about uh, work that he's been involved with in the healthcare space that has been uh, had very successful in terms of first client engagement and then through them the, the end, end customer engagement in through you know learning and development through virtual reality rather than PowerPoint and so on. I can imagine that would be particularly useful in an environment medical environment perhaps in a surgical environment where you want to simulate an operation of some sort that i yes, can see how exactly. that will be very very valuable okay okay that's interesting and what about things like smart homes and, and other internet of things connected devices yeah so internet things connected devices the the this is this is further down the line in my hum, humble opinion there are some companies out there trying to do some, some innovative stuff and building the platforms that are going to allow the brands to get on board. But based on what you currently see in the, in the, the, the high street and in the, in, in, in the reach of the consumer, it, it's still got some way to go to, to, to identify 
as we say, the killer app for this space that's going to drive it to, to mass market engagement. But I think with the likes of Samsung, Panasonic, the mobile companies, the fit tech companies, all trying to get there and loads of individuals, entrepreneurs, you know, idea creators coming up with their ideas, I think they'll, they'll, they'll crack it pretty quickly. The problem we've got there, though, in that space overall, it kind of reminds me of maybe the mobile app space in the late 90s when we didn't have the iPhone and we were basically waiting for something or someone to create the essentially the, the, the iPhone app library. There was something in Japan uh, that was doing really well, but we didn't have any equipment in Europe. And it kind of feels the same in this mm. space. We need someone big enough and strong enough to create a uh, you know, platform as a service that's so compelling for developers. They get on board, develop the apps. From the apps, we get a, a killer app that brings in the consumers in enough volume to attract the bigger brands and the investment and then you get into that momentum that, that growth cycle um i don't think we're there yet but then i wouldn't claim to be an iot expert but based on what i see in the consumer marketplace i i, I haven't seen that much that has made me feel you know that there's the next iphone or, or that sort of level of of, of potential success mm. so i think I think if you were to, to sum up, you know, how do you future proof your career or, or how do you get ready for the future? It's it's, you know, that old adage, the only constant is change is you're going to have to be pretty flexible, pretty dynamic. You're going to have to make sure that you stay on top of the trends, whether you're just starting out on your marketing career, or perhaps equally as importantly, whether you're at the CMO level and getting towards the end of your career you're really going to have to make sure that you're staying on top of the trends and testing and trying out things perhaps in that growth hacking way to see what works, testing things and adapting things and modifying things to make sure that your strategy works, tying that all back to a good understanding as to who your customer is and what's the, the lifetime value of that customer. Yes, uh, absolutely. And then to do that, I think today in the UK marketplace, which I know quite well, the companies where you can do that maybe is I think you've got some small companies like ourselves and others that are very into data and very into technology and also have connected to bridge the two so that the tech, the data can talk to the tech and make it do stuff in terms of brand experience in real time. I think from those companies, and that's why I'm with Altair, you can you can learn a lot and you can move very quickly. Some of the bigger corporations, you know, have innovation labs now that are trying to do um, interesting stuff. You know, Unilever have a uh, an innovation division that acts as a kind of um, incubator for, for for companies, yeah. essentially. So you can learn a lot in those those spaces. And then, as you say, the other thing is culture. Do you have a management or a line management that allows you to talk about data rather than just listen to their opinions? Do you have a business that is cr committed to change? And when you suggest new ways of doing stuff, they don't all say, no, that's wrong. That's a cultural thing. You can't always realize whether you've got that or not until you're in the company, unfortunately. But I guess the, uh, the, 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 the recruit market is, is a lot more dynamic these days. So as a young person starting your career, you can, you can also move around a lot more maybe and find the right mix of those factors. Got you. Morris, I think it's really interesting. And I think your perspective on the future of marketing is, is really interested and well-founded as well so thanks so much for coming on the show to take me through your your Pleasure. thinking and, and your ideas 
If there are people that would like to pick up the conversation, have a chat with you, how should they best connect with you? So we, we've got a website called intelligentfools.co.uk. So that's a good starting point to, to get in contact. And, and obviously, we, we're all about bringing knowledge to the market and bringing everyone up to speed so that we can all benefit over time. And if they wanted to speak to you directly, is there a Twitter handle? Is there a LinkedIn profile? Yes, so uh, tw- Twitter is at Morris C. Flynn. We've also got at Alter UK. But me directly is, is the first one. And then LinkedIn, if you just Google Morris C. Flynn, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see my profile. And yeah, always happy to answer questions, try and be helpful in general. It's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. Perfect. Morris, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Really appreciate your time, Andy. Thank you.